0: From the Dykeman Farmhouse Museum in the heart of Inwood, New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air. It's where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home in what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we're turning our spotlight on music copyist and local historian, Don Rice. Don has made a distinguished career as a music copyist on and off-Broadway and well beyond, Starting as far back as 1992 with Miller Music Service, his projects have included Jelly's Last Jam, Beauty and the Beast, The Producers, and Wicked. With his own company of Annexer Rice Music Service, he has worked on Jersey Boys, The Little Mermaid, Frozen, and many other theater, film, and television productions. In addition, Don is a local historian for the Inwood community. He serves as president of the Dykeman Farmhouse Museum Alliance and, along with Cole Thompson, co-hosted in pre-pandemic times a monthly Lost Inwood history series in the neighborhood, which evolved into a book called Lost Inwood. We're going to talk about that, his work, and so much more. But first, Don, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air. Thanks, Aaron. Good to be here. It's really great to see you in person. Uh, How are you and your family doing? hanging in there um now that spring
1: is coming things are looking up and uh more people get the vaccine i have high hopes for the that the rep by the end of the year we'll be i don't know about back to normal but close to
0: it it'll feel a lot better right yeah well we hope so too um and as far as normal for our industry it's been anything but normal yeah. um we uh don and i were just talking before the uh, we got on air here is that we just recently celebrated a year of closing from Broadway off-Broadway regional theater theater, as we know it, live performance in general has been on pause for over a year. Yeah. Um, It's going to be really interesting to see what it's going to be like coming back. Isn't it? Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. Especially the New York work. Absolutely. How is that going to restart? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hopefully uh, everyone will be able to work together and we can phase in a production at a time um, before it goes all gangbusters.
1: I haven't heard about how it's going to go yet or what the plans are.
0: Yeah. I've, I've only spoken to um, a few general managers uh, and uh, obviously everyone wants their show to be up and back uh, or the ones they had in the pipeline to be out first. Yeah. Um, I'm even, I even saw some commercials the other day for six the new musical about Henry VIII's wives um, trying to pr- uh, gain some momentum again. Is June 1st still what they're looking at? The Broadway League still says June 1st. Um, as far as what's possible, I believe what's feasible that everyone is kind of collectively agreeing behind closed doors is that um, September seems more feasible for the earliest productions and then uh, some producers have come out and said uh, 2022. Mm-hmm. would. Well, they're just saying, we're going to go back then. Yeah. Uh, and I think a staggered approach is important because at the end of the day, everyone's competing for the same audience. And tourism is a big part of that audience and coming back, which, uh, which affects your work as a music copyist oh, for yeah. the Broadway musicals, for sure. Um, but Don, let's start talking about your career as a music copyist, if you sure. don't mind. Uh, for the uninitiated or just for those who don't work in the world of creating musicals from the ground up. Can you share with our listeners, what does a music copyist do? Yeah.
1: Um, it's a very old profession, not the oldest profession, but it is among the older music professions in that as long as there've been composers who've written on paper, there've been people who have, uh, assisted as editors and as, uh, taking jobs, taking the work off the back of the composer so that the composer can compose, the creative people. So it, I, I've read articles about Beethoven's music copyists and, uh, and what he liked about each one. People even know their names, some of them. Um, what it, so what is it that they do is that I work with a composer, but more frequently an orchestrator and a music director, and I'm the music craftsman who prepares sheet music for the band in the pit. And so we'll take a score, orchestrator will provide a score after the songwriter provides the song. And uh, and then we need parts for the orchestra. And so the person who extracts the parts, writes them out line by line, um, and uses all of the common practices that help a, perf- a music instrumentalists play their music without stopping, without raising their hands with questions, without adding in any of my own mistakes. That's the copyist. I'm like the music printer and uh, the music extraction person.
0: And can you speak to where, during the production period,
1: your work begins? I'm always pre-production, almost. And so where, where that comes from, let's see. Usually, Well, the songs are usually written before Actually, there's a lot of the, the the beginnings of a show that I'm not even aware of. I'm always coming in at a certain place, and that is often around when the cast starts to rehearse. So that's four to six weeks before the first preview, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that's when they actually are all in a room with the director, with the choreographer, uh, and with a piano player and a drummer, and they are uh, working out the arrangements of each song. There's also a music department member called the arranger. And so the songs might be stretched. We'll add another verse. We're gonna, this one's going to have a dance. This one will have an intro. And they work out the structure of all, each, all of these songs. Uh, and once they get, get it all hammered out, they have a piano part with a vocal. And that they can hand to an orchestrator who will bring the whole thing into three dimensions. It will go beyond the rehearsal room of a piano and a, and a drummer and suddenly, there'll be 20 musicians, if you're lucky, 15 musicians. Um, we are recording live on Broadway, folks. That's at least a three-piece band there, <laughs> driving by. <laughs> One, two, depending on the number of sirens. But that see, that's the coloration, and so the orchestrator will color it, depending on the emotion that's needed at the moment, or the cue that's needed at the moment. There could be a dance, ding you know, in the middle of a dance, uh, uh, to synchronize the band with a motion on stage, or with a lighting cue, or with some other effect, and so the orchestrator brings the color to the song that the composer and the director and choreographer all want. And then once that's done, a score has been created, and then it gets delivered to me. So the bulk of my job is, the first half of my job is before the first preview. They try to get most of the show done before then. So a lot of times, maybe not so often, underscores and sort of connective passages might wait till the end, or the bows might be choreographed later uh, during previews. And so then the second part of my job is during previews when things change. So they've rehearsed in a room. They think the song's going to go great. They've released it to the orchestrator, and I make the parts. Now they get it in front of a live audience, and the audience has reactions that then they're going to tailor their songs to, to perhaps maybe work, work out a better angle. They want a better ending or they can't hear this part because the audience is applauding. Uh, and so then they'll make changes. And during previews, that's when the high pressure part of my job happens in that you get a change in the middle of the afternoon and they want to try it that night and so the turnaround time goes down to next to nothing and you have to really be quick on your feet
0: and how many parts sometimes does that take in that turnaround time like sometimes you're working on it's not just the woodwinds right it's for a variety of parts for that entire section
1: yeah they might have cut a few measures and i talk about a measure that's four counts of music typically you know one two three four They might just say well it's too short we need to just cut a couple of measures Okay, so we'll do that for tonight. And if the orchestrator needs to adjust it, they'll dictate some changes and we'll just do we'll go as fast as we can. It could be that they work on 5 songs that day and some of them don't affect us because they're book dialogue scenes. They've changed the dialogue, we never know about that, but if they've changed the music, we do know about that because it has to be right every night. And then we become part of the keeping the show exactly as it should be every night as it changes during previews
0: And it's funny then you sometimes in previews you're asked to add more music for reasons you would never fathom for instance um you you find things out like perhaps a piece uh, a scene change needs to happen and it's taking longer than perhaps the director initially expected to do and so asked for music to the composer, if the composer's still alive, the composer's even still there, yeah. say, can we have something more to yeah. use?
1: I'm doing that with Frozen right now. Um, there are two tours, two touring versions of certain songs because of the scenery, because of the set. Uh, what do you know about love? It's number nine in Frozen. And on the US tour, the set, which is an ice bridge, is a certain size. And so the song the song, the action takes place on that set. And so the song has to fit the action. The length of the song so they have a version for that piece of set of set and then the broadway stage had a larger ice bridge and i think they're going to use that in tokyo so the the tokyo or broadway version is a different version of the song uh, not because the emotional things in the song are different but because the set is different something you would never have thought of comp- so this the song is 10 or 15 seconds longer or something like that but it is t- it is really precise because the action has to fit the music and if the action takes place on a bigger set the music has to accommodate
0: it pretty fascinating yeah people never think about that when they're reading a score
1: you wouldn't <laughs> and, know it. and, listening. and wondering yeah. why is the
0: song so long
1: <laughs> yeah you wouldn't know it listening to it because the arrangements uh fit the emotions are still right for everything
0: pretty amazing pretty amazing so w- once you're into previews and once opening night hits, um, people think the job is done at opening night. That's not really the case when it comes to music copyists, is it, Don? What happens, the work continues well past opening night sometimes, even well past many closing performances in some circumstances, doesn't it?
1: Well, it all depends on the production, and that does change from, from job to job. Um, the more successful the show, the more what you said is true. They're more. They're gonna. There might be an arrangement for uh, the Tony Awards broadcast if the if the production is featured on one of their um, you know things on stage. They might do a cast album, in which case the music has to be tailored to actually have beginnings and endings, or however they want that concept of that cast album to go. Um, They could go on Good Morning America, and they need an arrangement for that. So there's like little additional jobs that happen, and the more successful, they go into promotion more related to promotion, television ads or or mostly radio jingles, Uh, they'll they'll need some music for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then different actors come in after six months or a year and they sing in slightly different keys. Not all of them sing in exactly the same keys from opening night. So then you need to move your song up to a slightly higher key or down to a slightly lower key, depending on uh, whether or not they reach the upper or lower comfortable limit of their ranges. So sometimes, like on Beauty and the Beast, there were a couple of songs that were had to be done in several keys. Same with Wicked. Uh, trying to think of the songs. I mean, Defying Gravity, that. I, actually, I don't know which songs had a lot. But, but you look at them and you think, wow, we've got like two or three or four, even four keys for this particular song. It's pretty amazing. Or, in the case of Wicked, does the wizard dance well or not? And if there's, so there's choreography if, the The actor who plays the wizard, at least at the beginning, there was choreo- choreography for the dance part of a certain song, and but then other versions didn't have as long a dance break. Pretty. So it's tailored to the how the skills of the
0: person who's performing. That's why live theater. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get, and um, it's it's pretty interesting, and, and it it all affects everything else casting everything else you're looking for certain people who can do certain things and some people wonder why like well I'm right for that role I I could play that role too well there's no question you could play the role but sometimes there's factors as what you're describing is important for the specific role because if they can't dance or yeah. that affects a lot yeah happening for a lot of different people on the production yeah
1: Pretty play to play to the strengths
0: yep absolutely uh, so Don, when you were a kid, or whenever you saw your first musical, what was your first musical you saw? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, I saw an Oliver Twist when I was about five. Not on Broadway. I was living up. I was living in Chicago when I saw it. I remember being amazed because it had a rotating stage, and so there was a chase scene somewhere in Act Two, where everybody's running. But it, but it's the thing that's rotating. But it, there was they go through rooms and stuff. It seemed like they were running
0: down the block and. That's what I remember most. <laughs> um did you picture yourself like being the artful dodger after that production or or uh like, No not really, but it
1: uh when was it? In eighth grade, somebody persuaded me to try out for a play. And so I did. And it w- and it was Oliver. <laughs> was it wasn't really. <laughs> you just put
0: two and two together, didn't you? <laughs> How about that? You're welcome, Don. <laughs> this is better than therapy, right? <laughs> <laughs> who was the character though? Bill Sykes. Cause you're a tall guy like me. Yeah, that's who it was. Was it? Yeah, I figured. That's the. But they'd make me play too, probably. I would yeah. never pass for a little orphan anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah. Um But it's a great role. Uh, so I'm curious um, when you got uh, that role as Bill Sykes, and afterwards, uh, it's. I would say people usually picture themselves playing a role when they see theater for the first time, or when they go out to be part of a production. Um, or maybe even playing in the pit after musicians, uh, uh, but rarely, I think people think about working backstage or directing, or it's, I think it'd be highly unusual for someone to be inspired to become a music copyist as their first foray into Uh theater. So I'm curious uh, and very intrigued how you found your path as a copyist and how it led to working at arguably the highest level of your industry.
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? Chance played a big part in it. Um, but what happened was I was playing, I was a saxophone player and a saxophone major in music. I have a music conservatory degree. And um, so I've been pl- I had played so many you know, classical pieces of music. And then big band, being a saxophone player, you play a lot of big band and jazz pieces. And, it's, and you're sight reading. And I'm a good sight reader. And so uh, I would notice on some songs that I would get lost more than other songs and you wonder well, why am I getting lost? It's a solo, I'm supposed to be playing but I'm getting lost. And I started to re- realize that the sheet music itself could help me or hinder me in staying, sorry, um, in keeping up together with the music or, or it could lose me. Um, after college, I eventually ended up on cruise ships where I was playing in a band on a cruise ship and then was a band leader for a while. And that's where I started being a music copyist inadvertently because I was arranging music for the band and for entertainers who were coming through the ship. It was Carnival Cruise Lines, so uh, uh, you know a magician would come and they would hire and he would hire me to write some song for them, you know, for the band for some act of his or for our singers. Particularly the singers would hire me to arrange songs that they wanted to to sing in front of their cruise ship weekly schedule. So they took these charts with them with and distributed them and we would play them. And uh, as I started to uh, write my own parts, I realized A, my handwriting is really bad. And B, I saw advertisements for computer music notation software that was coming out. This is 1988. So the Macintosh was only three or four years old. And uh, I had used a PC so briefly. And the whole graphical interface of the computer was just being developed. So um, from Grand Cayman Island, I made a pay for a phone call to a place in Minnesota, and I bought some music notation software called Finale. This is in December or November of 1988, right when it came out. And I learned it, and I had bought, I went in with the cruise director to an Apple store, and we bought some Macintoshes. I had saved my money. These things could do nothing, but and they cost a fortune, but it could do just enough. And I learned how to use the software on my own, because we were just going around our weekly thing, you know, Jamaica every week, and Crank Cayman every week, and Cosmel every week. And I'm writing music for the band to play. And then the entertainers hear that music, and they say, can you write something for me? And the computer parts, I would get off the ship at St. Thomas every week and use their inkjet printer or their laser printer at a print service in the port, and then we would have our music to play. And it looked so much better than my own handwriting. And people loved that because it looked like it came out of a published book. And, uh, and the entertainers in particular loved that. So they started hiring me to write music for them and paying me to do it. So when I was getting ready to leave the ship and you're thinking, what are your options if you, you know you're not going to be a saxophone player on a cruise ship anymore, now you have to really fend for yourself on land. I thought I could if I moved to New York I could be a saxophone player or I could be an arranger, you know, or orchestrate for for entertainers or whatever. Or I, I can always provide the sheet music because I know how to operate the software. So, who's going to call me for what? And that's how it sort of ended up being it because I got more phone calls for being a music copyist because Broadway was just getting to the point of making the transition between fountain pen. Music copyists used fountain pens for hundreds of years, and some still do. But Beethoven's copyists used a fountain pen or a quill, and up until the 1990s, Broadway used them. As a matter of fact, all professional commercial music was done by hand.
0: Do you have any um, favorite... Songs from musicals that you've worked on that have been cut completely and that you've wished they've kept them in
1: I don't think that way I don't know if I'm a mercenary or (laughs) Or (laughs) Just not so uh, You're clinical you're clinical in your work It's my job and i'm a professional about it and I try not to get Emotionally involved with it. There are plenty of songs that were cool. I was just thinking about one this morning um, See, I can see, remember it. It was the original opening number of the Goodbye Girl. And uh, they performed it three or four times. I remember being backstage, the first preview with Peter Miller. This is in Chicago, 92, I think. They made it through the first performance. And I don't think they had to stop. We see Marvin Hamlish backstage. Peter says, So, Marvin, does that mean we can go home? And Mar- Marvin says, pack your bags, you're out of here, This is we're done. And then the next day, Peter Miller, whose job it was, calls Marvin and says, okay, so about those tickets? And Marvin says, you're not going anywhere until I tell you to. <laughs> and we were there for like another month <laughs> because they replaced that song. And they, and they were, you know, but I still remember it. I think that song is still, is part of the exit music. Might be parts of it on the cast album, but gotcha. there's, there's no singing anymore. Amazing. Um, and if I were to think about it, there are going to be others like that too. But that's what comes up right now.
0: I just think it's so fascinating that you have this. Uh, for those who work on a production, you, I, I think that yeah, I agree. You have to keep a professional composure, and you have to, you're there to do a job, and 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 keep keep the story moving forward yeah. for everyone. Um, but the fact that we do work in theater. Uh, part of it is, is yes, it is a job, of course. Um, but two is that there is an emotional connection. Sometimes you end up hearing us, you know, you hear an earworm that gets to you, and yeah, and then when it's not there anymore, you're like, you kind of miss that, yeah. Uh, but it's fantastic that you're able to, you know, it. it the composers do hide little pieces of snippets of some things elsewhere, yeah, that recur, perhaps, yeah. in, perhaps an exit music, perhaps in interludes between scene changes, perhaps in. Bridges of songs. They end up creating new bridges for things. Oh, sometimes the songs are so great. There was a song cut in the act two of Frozen. That
1: that was it. They performed it in Denver, but they didn't perform it on Broadway. It was gone by the time it opened on Broadway. But it was such a good tune, swinging. Um, I think they put it on as a bonus track of the cast album.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, um, we're going to switch gears here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to your alternative life as a local historian. Yeah. Uh, For for the record, you were not born in Inwood. No. Correct? Uh, So what was it about the neighborhood that drew you in?
1: I remember walking one day, and I ended up in Inwood Park. I walked from Cabrini, and I ended up up here, and I remember thinking, what is this neighborhood? The air seemed different. It was, I had a visceral reaction to my first time in Inwood. And so uh, then I really thought, um, this could be a good place. I wonder what it's like to live here. So I walked into Rob Kleinbart's office. And since I didn't know really where I was or anything, he was asking me for information. I didn't want to give my name or anything. So I was, where am I really? I don't even know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it felt right. And so um, then we started to look up here. And we found a, eventually found a place. Uh, And that was 20, well, more than 20 years ago,
0: 1999. And then how do you go from just loving the neighborhood and feeling special to becoming a kind of a spokesperson for it? We'd recently moved into our apartment. The uh, uh,
1: co-op was going to try and put some photos up on the wall of the lobby so that it would be less dreary looking, you know, look nice. And they invited people to come out and see these old historic photos that they had found to put up in the lobby. You know, I'm just a few months in the neighborhood and I don't know anything about the history. But when I'm looking at these photos, I thought they were cool. And I kind of thought, how did they find them? So the internet is in its infancy. It's 1999. Um, but I tried my luck and I've, ended up at the Library of Congress, and I found a another photo of Inwood, and it was back in the days when Scavengers was open, yeah. and um, someone someone at Scavengers was a guy, Lila, somebody was, must have been Guy, because he was a photo editor, or a photo department person, and I told him that I'd found some image, and he liked it, and it went up, and they got a copy, and it went up in the lobby somewhere, um, and that... Gave me that positive feedback that I needed, thinking, "Wow, I can do this on our neighborhood. <laughs> I could, I could research our neighborhood. I'm so curious about so many things." And so then, as the internet and institutional digitizing um, started to gain traction, there would be more and more. And then eBay, of course, people are selling stuff, and that's another way to research. You don't have to buy stuff; you can look at the pictures, Mm -hmm. they're really serving them up and you can use search keywords to find stuff. And that's how I met Jason Minter, who was also interested in Inwood history. And uh, so Jason and I started going, we would go up to the Kingsbridge Historical Society, we would uh, collect this or that, and, and trade notes. So that when he opened his Indian Road Cafe, he said, Don, you know, we should do a history thing." Do you think that that's a possible thing? And I said, Well, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it on my own. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so we did try one on my own, and uh, Cole was there, and he came up to me afterwards and offered great suggestions. And I said, You want to do it together? <laughs> and, that, and so there, there. And so that's how it happened. And so he, he's equally good at research, and uh, he has really become an expert presenter. And so I mean. So it's just a, really a lot of fun to listen to him, what he's discovered. I learned stuff all the time. So between the two of us, uh, we were able to keep it going. And so it's like one month of do, diving deep and another month of getting it ready. And uh, and
0: it sort of became, it had it took on a life of its own. Well, I love uh, one of the tales you've told. and. Uh, Perhaps some people can find these pieces on eBay every once in a while. Um, The Inwood Pottery, uh, which was a movement uh, because there was uh, an Inwood Pottery studio. Yeah. Just um, hidden into Inwood Hill Park. It was a residence uh, working kiln and art studio uh, that was functioning in Inwood Hill Park. Year-to-year lease with the first Department. Yeah. And uh, that's just to me is uh, it's a thrilling piece of history that, you know, before things got so bureaucratically divided up, mm-hmm. uh, people did live in the woods. People did have residences all over. Uh, I mean these are there are Indian caves there. I mean, well before us, L- Lonape, yeah. uh, not to go too far of a deep dive into the history of it all, but um, it's kind of, I, I, I like that part. it's not it's not so long ago. Where you could just walk into the woods and happen upon someone's house, and and find uh, what they're about and how um, this particular Inwood pottery studio, Inwood pottery studio, excuse me, um, was a connection to that culture. Yeah. Uh,
1: they taught lessons. Um, I believe that there are still people alive who took lessons at the at the uh, Inwood pottery studio. They were kicked out in the thirties by Robert Moses when the park was renovated and. Baseball fields were built and things like that. So it was just a whole different. Um, but I think that it is amazing because people are alive who would re- still remember the Inwood Pottery.
0: Yeah. And also there's uh, on the other side of the neighborhood uh, towards the Harlem River, yeah. um, there was the Dykeman Oval. Oh yeah, Uh, And I'm curious if you could tell listeners without giving the complete seminar, uh, but it was the home to the New York Cuban, uh, Cubans, New York Cubans and other large events. Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think one time we had a ginormous sports stadium in Northern Manhattan.
1: Yeah. This is right at the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance too. So around 1920 ish. And so the stadium was built in 1917 and, uh, because it was independently run um, they the people who did the bookings there could book any team they wanted um, and so traveling black teams who were looking for inroads into the New York market could book their games there and so it, the, the very first Negro national League formed in 1920 I believe or Rube Foster was the guy behind that and his teams um, came to the Dykeman Oval this isn't the late teens, early 20s, and um, put Inwood on the map. It was like where people from Harlem would come. There were other stadiums, of course, but this was one of the stadiums where people would come to see their games. And then a second sort of iteration of it happened in the 30s with Alex Pompez and his New York Cubans team, which sort of, he he was a guy who uh, sort of began, and created the pipeline of Latin American players into the, eventually the major leagues, guys in the hall of fame. And he had, his team was playing at the Dykeman oval.
0: It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, uh, to, to know that we have such a rich history in the neighborhood. And, um, I, I personally thank you and Cole and all those who, uh, have documented this, uh, because I think it has made our lives more enriched and, um, I, I, for one, think there's no greater gift than knowledge uh, to pass on. So mm. I appreciate both of your uh, creativity and <laughs> uh, ingenuity in uh, creating your, your talks and um, and sharing your passion with our community and our honor listeners here Can, at Inwood you know, Works. People always ask us, not always,
1: how do you come up, keep coming up with new things? Why don't you run out? Haven't you talked about everything? Uh, there's no way because the... It's like a play. All right, let's use a theater analogy. If you know a play well, then it reveals itself even more to you. Like Shakespeare, people can spend their lives studying Shakespeare. And if you go to, say, Shakespeare play the first time, you might not even understand all the words you're hearing. And so you get it on the surface, but you don't get it deep. And so the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know, and so then you can learn about that or reveals itself to you. And so there's never,
0: there's never an ending. Well, does that mean you're going to continue to bring back Lost Inwood and history presentations uh, post-pandemic? Yeah, I hope so. I hope we'll so find
1: too. out. Yeah. Well, I nice. know I'm not going to stop researching stuff. I've got like five topics going right now.
0: <laughs> wow. Any particular ones you want to share that you're working on?
1: Well, I am working on the Dykeman Oval Talk. Topic, And I've given it a couple of times at the New York Adventure Club and I'm going to be giving it in April for the Sabre people, the Society of American Baseball Research. Um, and the Dykeman Farmhouse has been trying to do a lot of research in, about the enslaved in North Manhattan. So there are different topics about that that I'm working on following paper trails. Um, we're working on the 212th Street Cemetery for the enslaved. And so I have a, power, a keynote going about that. There's also just trying to find uh, information, and there was a in, in, for, there was a uh, a talk just last Wednesday that the Dyckman House sponsored about it, about the actual enslaved in the Dyckman family. And um, so I'm also working on things related to that, maybe not just the Dyckman family, but about North Manhattan in particular. So uh, there's that, and th- I can, can I say one more? Yeah. Okay. About two weeks in the spring and two weeks in the fall, you can go up into Inwood Hill Park when there's not a lot of poison ivy. And you can find the old remnants of the old houses and things that were up there. And that has been a super long term project of mine to try and figure out uh, what echoes of the past are still up in Inwood Hill Park. And um, Betty Lee took Cole and I up there. Betty Lee is a neighbor call and I have there five, six, seven, I don't know. Time goes by to show us some old wells. She grew up in the neighborhood. So that's when we discovered some old wells. And that's when we realized there's really stuff there because these wells are very deep. And, and uh, so I'm always looking for foundations. And uh, you can do that for a couple weeks in the spring and a couple weeks in the fall. So the, the whole uh, unspooling of Inwood Hill as a story is something I'm also working on. That's exciting.
0: Well, I think so too. And I think it's also exciting that you've become part of that history. No, I haven't. I think so. Huh. I think so. I mean, it's, it's, to, uh, you're not aware of it, but you're a walking institution in Wood Don. Huh. It's, uh, you, you offer a great service for people. And I think, again, providing people with the opportunity to experience things that, perhaps surrounds them every day and make them a little more of aware of their surroundings and yeah. and uh um uh, and uh the enrichment uh that exists in this community uh and uh and everyone who lives here is part of that evolution of that ongoing story. So yeah. I think that's pretty it's pretty impressive. It's something
1: I really think about a lot. Um how do we relate to the past? Uh, and when I say that, I mean not the things of the past, but the people, and how were they like us and and how were they like us or what was what would it have been like uh, that's sort of a limitation or the challenge of a museum like this it's a thing, but why is it here it 's here because people were in it, and people built it, and people lived their lives here and but they 're dead. And so the life of the lifespan of a person is too short to really take you back to the Founding Fathers or to or before that or, or to the Lenape. There were people. Did they laugh? You know, how did they joke? How were they, what were the jokes that they told? Um, how were their relationships, you know, as a in life? So mm-hmm. how were they three dimensional? Yeah. And so the real challenge as I walk around and study this stuff is how does that how does this relate to the people who that these up like these wells or something what was it how did they affect their life yeah and how is that a 3d thing that we can relate to today instead of a an antique or black and white photograph or something like that how can it be in full color
0: yeah that's what i hope these podcasts serve in some kind of way Mm. um that i mean and I can't. I can't even imagine what technology in ten years will exist that make <laughs> recording on outdated now. Yeah. Let alone fifty years or a yeah. hundred years when I hate to say it will all well be gone. Uh, but it's true. And uh, you know they'll hear, wow, they were recording at Dykeman Farmhouse Museum and there were sirens outside and horns blaring mm-hmm. and. Oh, didn't you know they moved Broadway a long time ago? Wait, Broadway was there? Yeah, Broadway was there. Can you believe yeah. Broadway was there? Yeah. And they moved Broadway to 10th Avenue. Well, and Just like the old Kingsbridge Road yeah. was moved sure. way, way, way back when, um, <laughs> 100 years ago. Um, so I'm curious what people will think of us mm. here talking now in the oldest farmhouse in uh, Manhattan uh, with the technology that exists around us now, with yeah. this wonderful art installation that exists around us now, uh, and the people who are trying desperately like yourself and uh, myself to promote the local artists and local cultural heritage here in the neighborhood. I'm um, and, and cu- very curious to uh, see what affinity they might have for our time. Yeah. When they look back to us and, and what we're doing and yeah, hearing the sirens and the and the fire engines and, and how loud and what is perhaps the time and going, wow, such a quiet neighborhood now. How, it was so loud back then. You never know. You never know. I, I think that uh,
1: history can be forgotten. And so even if I'm doing a good job, uh, it's good for one generation. And so, so one thing I've been thinking about is uh, especially with related to the other people. I mean, we have know a lot about the Dyckman family, but Dyckman family were just the uh, people whose name were on the deed here. There were a lot of other people living around here. And what were their lives like? And their lives were probably more like ours than the dikemans were like ours. You know, people who worked, and, and so. If, we can learn more about those people in schools. Or if we can bring the other folks who worked, the laborers, the people who were enslaved, the people who were tenants. Um, what were their lives like? Because that brings a better picture of what this whole Dykeman farmhouse means. Because there's more than just the Dykeman family in the farmhouse. There's a, a world that it inhabited. And that, I think, becomes more... If you can communicate that to someone, say a 10-year-old 10, 10 coming on a tour, um, they might actually uh, remember that
0: for the rest of their lives. Well, we could only hope. Yeah. Well, Don, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Aaron. <laughs> you bet. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, and I feel like we can keep talking if we wanted to. Uh, but is there a place people could might go to hire you if they're in need of a music copyist uh, or keep track of upcoming history projects? Anyone online? I don't have a website.
1: Um I'm like a plumber, word of mouth.
0: <laughs> but on
1: Facebook, there is an Annex to Rice music service page, so you can go there, and Russ Russ is, uh, that's what Russ has been updating every once in a while. I don't know if we've updated it lately. As far as history stuff goes, here right now in my uh, function as president of the Darkman Farm House Museum Alliance, um, there's stuff going on. Uh, at some point i'm guessing a lost inward will happen again somewhere i don't know where or when or if but i'm hoping and i don't know i'm not good at promoting myself so
0: that's okay i'll do it for you
1: all right (laughs) i i'm good at working
0: well (laughs) that's all Keep, keep up the good work so listeners uh you can follow those links online uh Uh, Where he said, uh, here at Dykeman Farmhouse Museum and on Facebook at Angster Rice uh, Music Services. Uh, So thanks again, Don, for joining me on this Artist Spotlight episode of Inwood Artworks On Air. It's where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us. Many thanks to all here at Dykeman Farmhouse Museum in Inwood for hosting us, and to heightsites.com for local uptown promotional support. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmwork Style Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. Uh, you can support our programming and everything else we do by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc backslash donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer and the NISCA Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. From the top of Manhattan and the bottom of our hearts, thank you for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air.
1: Thanks, Aaron. Go, Aaron. (laughs) Thanks, Don.